Our scripture this morning comes from Matthew 2, verses 10 through 12. When, when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. This is the word of the Lord. You can have a seat. All right, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you all. Happy New Year. All right, so I'm sorry to disappoint you if you are a superhero buff, because I just am not one. <laughs> and I wish, I maybe aspire to be, um, but I'm not. So I know a little bit about like Superman and... I think there's Aquaman, and I don't know. I couldn't name maybe too many more than that. But I do that Batman is one. And Batman has this thing associated with him called the bat signal. And anyone, just correct me along the way, because I'm going to get some of these things wrong. I sound like, like I'm 150 years old. <laughs> A modified search engine. No, search engine. Search light. That's what I mean. Search engines are things that you Google with. Yeah, yeah. Now I sound 200 years old. A modified searchlight shining through a mounted bat emblem. It's a distress signal, kind of like SOS, that radiates into the sky, and the Gotham City Police Department uses it to alert Batman when they need his help. I think that was pretty much right, yeah. So outside of the movies, there are plenty of other distress signals in life, things we're wired to see we can sense things like fatigue. Maybe that's what you're sensing with me right now. <laughs> fatigue, sadness, anger, withdrawal, and a fear that subtle change, or things like, we can pick these up in subtle body language changes. We also feel shifts in tone of voice or breath, communication frequency or, or intensity. And here's another thing that dates me. I think some of these things are called ghosting or putting someone on blast, right? Those are things, right? <laughs> Sorry, I'm really old. Okay, and, and beyond this, there are specific abusive or so-called toxic behaviors that exist on a broad spectrum. Mentions of the word narcissism, for example, continue to climb in our books and research. And so I, I got a, a chart from Google's, it's called Ngram Viewer. Uh, which shows the usage frequency of words in publications. This, the ones I'm comparing here are on the bottom, egotism, hubris, vanity. These are words that are somewhat similar, kind of synonyms. And you see a slow rise from about 1920 up till today of narcissism. That's good, Kate, thanks. This isn't just because our interest in narcissism has grown. Many studies have shown that narcissism is actually increasing, but also so has self-esteem, which is interesting. I found a 2018 German study on this topic. It's entitled, Does a Narcissism Epidemic Exist in Modern Western Societies? Comparing Narcissism and Self-Esteem in East and West Germany. So I'm gonna read the entire study. No, I'm just kidding. So here's a critical distinction they make in the study. It says narcissism and high self-esteem both include positive self-evaluations, but the entitlement, 
exploitation, sense of superiority, and negative evaluation of others that are associated with narcissism are not necessarily observed in individuals with high self-esteem. So you can all feel very good about yourselves, but maybe not too good if you see the, you know, right. The therapist here is gonna correct me here in a little bit. So in this example, there are signals of health and distress. And if you need a complete picture of someone, you really need a better sense of the full range of their actions and attitudes. So how can we be trained to slow down our judgments and thought processes and increase our awareness of not just the evil, but the good, the true, and the beautiful? There are so-called bat signals that alert us to the bad and check engine lights to warn us of problems in our cars. But what signals direct us to the places we actually want to go? To the good, where do we look? Last month we explored how God draws near to us and how we draw near to him. Over the next six weeks, we're going to examine how God reveals himself. We'll discover that these stories confound expectations and reframe how we experience life. We'll look to the gospel writers and read stories of how people reacted to Christ's divine revelation. Did they shun the light or did they draw near to it? Did they receive the Messiah or reject him as a threat or maybe kind of a joke? What unhealthy behaviors manifested themselves? What healthy behaviors are highlighted? Was Jesus just a narcissist? Was he primarily focused on behavior modification of other people? Why or why not? There are a lot of rabbit trails we could go down here. But we, before we begin our journey, I wanna highlight one distinguishing factor that will define our exploration. As I mentioned before, there are plenty of so-called yellow and red flags we may experience in our interactions with people. But our primary focus for this study will be to learn how to see and pursue light. You could say the green flags of God's character and pursue them as manifestations of the person and personality of Jesus, not just detached virtues kind of in the salad bar of pop culture self-help books that kind of exist, right? we understand these are embodied personal virtues of Christ. So this is about a person, Jesus the Messiah, the King of light and life. This is why the series is entitled Radiant Life in the Kingdom of Light. This is also a series during the season of what is called, depending on kind of your background, Epiphany or Epiphany Tide. The names, dates, and emphasis vary a little bit depending on your tradition. Yesterday was the festival of Epiphany, commemorating the story of the Magi, which we'll actually look at today. An Epiphany in this sense means manifestation or appearance. The word theophany is a related word that appeans, it means essentially the appearance of a deity. So we'll immerse ourselves in the divine manifestation of Jesus as God. So we know the world can be very dark. We tragically saw that, like I mentioned, in the community of Perry this week. Our hearts break, and they ought to. We also saw unthinkable courage, compassion, and selflessness. We saw in the actions of Perry High School principal Dan Margberger this week, 
And he reminds us that light illuminates the darkness. Romans 12 is one of the New Testament, I think, most challenging passages on enemy love. And it ends with this summary statement. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is a description of action, but it's an action rooted, one rooted and sustained by life. This is the story of the kingdom of God. Darkness is the absence of light, not a thing in and of itself. The kingdom of light will prevail. Christ's life displays this, and we want to learn from his example. After all, our hope is the glory of Christ in us. So let's turn to our text for the day, which is Matthew 2. We're going to read kind of the full section, 1 through 12. But before I read it, here's today's key thought. And it's pretty straightforward. The light of Christ moves us. That's it. The light of Christ moves us. In particular, we'll see that the light of Christ directs our steps and moves our hearts. So let's turn to our text, Matthew 2, 1 through 12. It says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel." Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they heard the king, they went on their way and the star they had seen when it rose, went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. So Jesus is born in Bethlehem of Judea to Mary and Joseph. The Magi, often depicted as the three wise men, travel to visit Jesus. They likely travel from maybe around eight or 900 miles away in what is modern-day Iran to see the Christ child. They were likely not kings, maybe as like uh, we three kings would have you believe. It's possible, but I think unlikely. They were more likely royal advisors or counselors. And this is also... There's also nothing in the text about them, there being three of them, just to be clear. So I think we don't actually know how many there were there. And they definitely did not visit on the night of Jesus' birth, uh, which is often depicted in nativity scenes. Also, for the record, next time, like next Christmas season, look at a nativity scene like the ones that you set out. And I want you to just look at the physical size of the baby Jesus. Like, 
I'm like serious. That Jesus baby would be like 50 pounds, like a pre-K toddler. And, and Mary would be in rough shape. So I'm just throwing it out there. I know it's artistic license, but something is not right. Okay. So anyway, these royal advisors, sorry, that was a bad mental image. <laughs> really though. Um, so these are royal advisors. Gentiles just kind of show up in, who, Gentiles, like Gentiles, non-Jews, who just show up in Jerusalem and say to Jewish people, where's the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Like, what? <laughs> you're not even Jewish and you show up claiming there's a new heir to the throne and that you're ready to worship him and a star told you to do that? The answer is yes, and it's because the light of Christ directed their steps. Herod and the rest of Jerusalem took this very seriously, which tells you maybe a little bit about Jewish familiarity with these signs. They seem to receive this news as plausible. Verse 3 says that when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. The Magi show up and they go viral. Herod needs to shut this down fast. He needs to snuff out the light of Christ. So the Magi were brilliant scholars, not just some randos looking at the sky. From the book of Daniel, you may remember the Babylonian ruler Nebuchadnezzar had some troubling dreams and couldn't sleep. And so he called together his magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, astrologers, to interpret what he had dreamed. Ultimately, they couldn't do it, and to make a very long story short, they call in Daniel, and he can do it, and then he gives glory to God. So in Daniel 2, 48, 48 we read this after those events. It says, Then the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all its wise men. Daniel, like the Daniel you learned about maybe in Sunday school with the lion's den, he becomes the chief magi in Babylon. So when we read the prophecies of Daniel in the Old Testament, we need to envision a Jewish man who was taken into captivity by the Babylonians in Persia, who then rose to power as a wise man or a magi. In the New Testament, in the book of Acts, we see the same root word for magi used to describe a man who is a sorcerer. In the root word, magi, essentially, it, it, in that context, it means a false teacher who opposed Barnabas and Paul. Eliamos, or Elimas, I'm sorry, Elimas the Magas, which sounds a little bit like the modern acronym MAGA, so it's, it's not that. But there's, that is where we get our word magician. Maga, magician, right? So here's the connection. Some people believe the Magi, these scholars who traveled from the East, were very familiar with the prophecies given to Daniel in the past. They had been essentially handed down to them from previous generations of Magi. In Daniel 9, we see none other than the angel Gabriel, who would later appear in the Christmas story we've been reading the last few weeks, speaking to Daniel. Daniel 9, 20, verse 25 says this. 
While I was speaking, this is Daniel, while I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and making my request to the Lord my God for his holy hill, while I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the earlier vision, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. He instructed me and said to me, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. As soon as you began to pray, a word went out, which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy-sevens, and in general, most of these numbers, I think, probably are about years. Seventy-sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression and to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. No one understand this. From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler comes, there will be seven sevens. And 62 sevens, it will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. So we're not going to go down a big rabbit trail of trying to interpret the Old Testament, I'm just going to set that aside. But these Persian magicians and enchanters and sorcerers and astrologers, they may very well have been looking to a passage like this for what we could call green flags. Whatever it was that motivated them, we're not sure. But against the odds, they were looking for the light of Christ to direct their steps. This prophecy of a Jewish Messiah had probably been passed down to them and somehow captured their imaginations. Perhaps they had done the math, I don't know, in Daniel 9, and they were looking to the sky for a particular sign or alignment of stars to signal the, the Messiah's arrival. We do not know for sure. But what we see in Daniel 9, we also see in Luke 2 and Matthew 2, as we've been looking at the last few weeks, and through the scriptures and the history of the Jewish people, which is Revelation the revealing, God revealing himself, a great unfolding of the gospel, story in time and space, now made manifest through the prophesied Christ child. And as we looked at during Advent, the Magi's question is so simple and beautiful and I think instructive for us. It, this is their question. Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. It is as though they were looking for an opportunity to worship Jesus. These guys were ready. Like if they had heard the spirit of Christ would be at the Gateway Church today, I think they would have come. Like they would have dropped everything and said, this is what we're looking for. These men were thirsty. When Jesus reveals himself in light, they respond with movement, hundreds of miles, this is not easy travel in those times, toward Christ and worship and mystery. They had no idea what they would find. Remember, these are Gentiles, not Jews. This is the foreshadowing of the beginning of a new era, a new covenant. We can learn from their example. We don't need to try to interpret the stars to find Jesus. Jesus has already taken up residence in us through the person of the Holy Spirit, transforming our bodies into the temple of Christ. Are you looking for the leading of the Spirit of Christ? Are you responding to his presence with an intentional move toward worship? 
Does the light of Christ direct your steps? Does he still captivate your heart? What if you just asked him to stir that kind of affection within you? Nothing more or less. Just the simple act of asking and expecting. Let's look back at Matthew 2 again, starting in verse 3. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out for them the exact time the star had appeared, and he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I, might, I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Okay, so remember when I was talking about narcissism earlier? Well, Herod begins to show his true colors here. Entitlement, exploitation, a sense of superiority, a negative evaluation of others. It's sort of like check, 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 check. And so, the Spirit of God warns the Magi to avoid the obvious red flags and return home having worshipped the true king. Jared Stacy, who is a PhD candidate at the University of Aberdeen in Scotland, researches political conspiracy theories in Christianity. He had this to say about the events leading up to this moment. The star is a sign that ultimately foreshadows the entire work of Christ, announcing ahead of time the scandalous claim of Jesus as Lord, and the radical form this, leadership, or this lordship manifests through a Roman cross. The astral event signaled that the baby in the manger is the king. If Caesar was a man become God, what are we to make of God become man? Of a Lord whose path to the throne was paved by first leaving a throne. So Stacy, he emphasizes the subversion of Roman rule that occurs in Christ here. God becoming a man, it's usually the other way around in the politics of Rome and the Caesars who make themselves out to be gods. And Herod, the narcissistic puppet ruler of the Jewish people, knows that the Messiah would ultimately be the end for his reign too. Matthew 2.10 says, and this sets the contrast here with the Magi, when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. Overjoyed is basically two words here. They rejoiced exceedingly. The light of Christ had moved their hearts. Willie James Jennings is an associate professor, there he is on the left, of systematic theology, Africana studies, and religious studies at Yale University. He's also an author and Baptist minister. Mir Miroslav Wolf 
He is a Croatian theologian and is professor of theology and director of the Yale Center for Faith and Culture at Yale University, so they're colleagues. In 2021, these two men had a podcast conversation on the theology of joy entitled Joy and the Act of Resistance Against Despair. I'm gonna read just a little bit of their back and forth. And I want you to remember that the birth of Jesus, it evoked joy and yet was set against a backdrop of rage, jealousy, violence, poverty, corruption, hypocrisy, and so much more. There are red flags everywhere here. And darkness abounds. And yet, despite all of this, the light of Christ breaks through. And the heavenly host and the magi and others erupt with joy and worship, generosity, and reverence. They essentially give back to Jesus his own character. Hear how these two men, who faced plenty of adversity in their own lives, reflect on joy and despair. This is Wolf. He says, what is joy for you as a theologian, as a churchman, as a black man? Jennings. I look at joy as an act of resistance against despair and its forces, and all the forces of despair. Joy in that regard is a work that can become a state, that can become a way of life. Wolf, and it resists what? Jennings, despair in all of the ways that despair wants to drive us toward death. It wants to make death the final word. And death in this regard is not simply the end of life, but it's death in all its signatures. Death, violence, war, debt, all the ways in which life can be strangled and presented to us as not worth living. Wolf. So is this a way of like singing to the Lord in a strange land? Is this a way of a right life in the false one, is, to use Adorno's phrase? How would you put it, Jennings? I like singing a song in a strange land. I also like, as I like, I'd love to say, making productive use of pain and suffering and the absurd, not in order to take them lightly, but to take them very seriously, but not to make them gods. So it is pushing back. It is counterintuitive in that regard. Wolf. So how does one, though, find the kind of strength? How does one forge the weapon of joy in the midst of suffering and oppression? How does one cultivate joy? Jennings. Well, practically, you have to have people who you've heard sing these songs in strange lands. You have to have people who have been able to make you laugh in the places where you all want to do, is, all you want to do is cry. You have to have conditions set up where those people who have learned how to ride the winds of chaos can say to you, come on, let me show you how to do that. I think that's the first thing you have to have. And the second thing you have to have is a willingness to want to hold on to life. Even when there is very little that makes sense in life, joy is the currency that is flowing between hands in such situations. So Jennings suggests that we make productive use of pain and suffering and the, even the absurd in this life doesn't mean we take them lightly. We take things seriously. 
But joy is an act of resistance that says to ourselves and to those around us that these things are not God's. And I just love that. And we look to others who help pick us up with their presence and words and examples. We encourage one another. We make each other laugh, maybe when we want to cry. We make each other, and then we cry with them, of course. We sing together. We pray together. We cultivate joy by cultivating a willingness to want to hold on to life even when things don't make any sense. This is life in the kingdom of light. This is the spirit of Christ that the Magi were drawn to, the spirit who is present in us even now. This is why Jesus became human. He came to bring joy and healing, to push back against that which destroys and separates and abuses and crushes and silences and marginalizes. Jesus is alive. Death is on the way out. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He is the one, the anointed one Gabriel told Daniel about. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For thousands of years, our brothers and sisters, our Jewish brothers and sisters, waited and longed for the promised one in Bethlehem. So friends, this morning, I want to know, does the light of Christ move your heart? Does he direct your steps? Can you hear the invitation of Christ saying, come on, let me show you how to do that. For the next six weeks, I encourage you to reflect on whether the ills of this world have so clouded your view of Christ that they, in effect, have become gods. This is the temptation, I think, in the world where we have access to so much information. We should not be naive or block out the world. Instead, we want to move toward the light as the Magi did. And where there was pain, we bring the light with us. The Magi didn't know what they'd find. When they arrived in Jerusalem, evidently they needed to stop and ask for directions, which is, I guess, maybe reassuring. It's okay. You can ask for help. But today I want to close with a famous section of the book of Philippians. And as best you can, I want you to try to set aside like every Hobby Lobby poster you've ever seen of these verses and receive them afresh with the story of the epiphany before you. So here's Philippians 4, 4 through 9. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true and whatever is noble and whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received, or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. The God of peace will be with you. So the Apostle Paul encouraged the Philippians to look to Jesus. This baby who's being worshipped by Gentile astrologers in modern day, from modern-day Iran is the God of peace who will be with us today. 
Jesus loves to guard our hearts and minds from despair as we invite him into the places of our deepest pain. This too is life in the kingdom of light. We rejoice, we put these things into practice and the light of Christ directs our steps and moves our hearts. So we see the red flags, the acts of darkness, and we respond with the courage of Christ. We hold on to life because we know that death doesn't have the final word. We hold on to light because darkness is nothing but its absence. And we run to Jesus even now as children set free in the kingdom of light because the light of Christ is on the move. Thank you.